Welcome to the Hub Roundtable. Rudyard Griffiths here, the Executive Director of the Hub. I'm joined by Sean Spear, our Editor-at-Large. Sean, you are outside of uh, Ottawa. I, too, am in Ontario. Tell me, please, Brother Sean, do you see a glimpse of sun somewhere? <laughs> Is there a cloud just parting to descend some golden rays on the Spear household? I think I, I feel like I'm living... I'm in Toronto. I feel like I'm living in London, England, but without the great museums, the historical monuments and all that good stuff. Like what the heck's going on here? Yeah. It's like Vancouver without the ocean and the mountains. Uh, I'm, I'm here in Lorneal today and I'm afraid it's pretty grim, uh, gray, gray skies, no snow and lots of rain. We're celebrating our, our youngest first birthday, uh, Rudyard today. And I was thinking about it last year. I missed the final episode of 2022. It's the only one I missed. It's the, the, the nurses wouldn't let me record in the, in the delivery room, uh, <laughs> but your it, wife I, wouldn't let you record <laughs> in the delivery room. Let's be honest about this. But I managed to get away last year without making any predictions. And I guess, uh, this wow. year I don't have an excuse. Uh, Absolutely. so <laughs> but before we get to predictions, let's, um, Let's talk a little bit about what we think some of the big issues could be that will demand our attention at the hub, which will command a lot of the public conversation in 2024. We have a theory, we can share it with you now, that you can see start seeing some of the outlines of both policies and ideas that are going to kind of capture the public conversation. So why don't you kick off this segment of the show, Sean, with you know one of your choices for kind of policy debate for 2024 uh what's at the top of your list the top of my for me the top of my list is is declining gdp per capita something we've talked a lot about on this show it fell off a cliff in the last quarter um and so i, I see a well, world yeah let's put some numbers on that shot because it truly is remarkable i think w we don't have the final quarter i believe data yet for 2023 but as of the first three quarters it was down uh almost four and a half percent year to date. And that was after four previous quarters of decline in 2022. I mean, the, these numbers, Sean, I, I have a hard time wrapping my head, like, just unpack the numbers for us, because it's, it's a hard time to wrap your head around what this actually means. And I mean, it feels like a depression in per capita GDP. Like, I, I don't know, it's mind blowing. Yeah, we're seeing you know, there's been a long time gap between uh, Canada and U.S. when it comes to GDP per capita, but those numbers are are pulling even further apart. Uh, and so, Rudyard, I think 2023 was marked in the minds of a lot of policymakers and pundits as an affordability year. There was a lot of focus on inflation and interest rates and um, growing concerns about affordability in the housing market, food and other staples. I don't think that that interpretation was quite wrong, but I, but but I think for a lot of people, they think that that story is coming to an end. That interest rates will start to fall at some point in in 2024. That maybe we've managed to um, wrestle inflation to the ground. We can kind of debate that. But I think what it will expose is that the root of a lot of the concerns and anxieties that the public is expressing. It's this issue. It's more fundamental. It's more secular. It is. Uh, a growing sense that we aren't as rich as we used to be and that the 
future doesn't look as prosperous as as we as we as we anticipated. And that, I think, is most powerfully reflected in the consumer confidence numbers that came out towards the end of this year, in which people essentially described a, a level of pessimism that we haven't seen, you know, many times at all in the past 60 years. So I, I think this I think as inflation sort of dissipates is an issue, this question about living standards and the future prosperity of Canadians will be at the kind of backdrop of everything we talk about and debate in 2024. What, what do you think about that? I certainly hope so, Sean, but it's it's slightly a frog and pot scenario where you only get the compare and contrast when you leave Canada and say, go to the United States, where now the per capita GDP gap is roughly 25% um, on average. But it's it gets more acute when you look at this, uh, you know, comparing states to provinces. So Ontario, where I'm recording out of, you are too. You know, a per capita GDP equivalent now of West Virginia, one of the poorest uh, states in the union. You can similarly see uh, in other Canadian provinces, with the exception of Alberta, you know, Quebec having per capita GDPs similar to Mississippi, Alabama, you know, states well below the Mason-Dixon line. So we know it's happening. We The numbers tell us it's happening. And if you run if this experiment, let's say, of a four to odd percent decline in per capita GDP, U.S. per capita GDP increased by almost 2% last year. That's a 6% gap. You run that experiment, a 6% gap for four years, and you have a per capita GDP differential of 50% between Canada and the United States in four to five years from now by, let's say, 2030. What does that do, Sean, to the country? What does that do? You know, it's very different, let's say, than Europe, where you can have these differentials, but there are barriers of language, of culture, of regular, you know, regulation, professional accreditation, all those things that prevent mobility. We here in Canada are effectively um, honorary Americans. Um, we would be very naive not to acknowledge that we are we're at the precipice now and i worry about how you turn this around in say four to five years of a scenario whereby it would just be demonstrably stupid for talented people in canada businesses entrepreneurs uh, scientists academics scholars to remain in this country when you have a per capita gdp differential of 50 odd percent within five years. So Sean, to me, this is like a five alarm fire, but I just I just don't think the political class in this country either, I don't know what you explained it to me, do they just not get it? Is it, it doesn't sell well? It, it's not really a great message on the stump? I don't know, I to me, this is probably the single biggest, I'll use the crisis word, the single biggest crisis that Canada faces right now. And it has huge existential consequences if we don't fix this and we don't fix it fast. Yeah, yeah, I, I agree with all that. And I, I would say the major impediment to progress uh, is our addiction to a low skill immigration, right? Like we've seen our numbers driven up. I think there was, Canadians are bought in to large scale skilled immigration. Um, that's reflected in polls and support for 
large numbers coming in through the PR stream. I think what what Canadians are waking up to as we end 2023 is that's not precisely what policymakers have given us, um, that we've seen a massive expansion over the past several years in non-permanent resident streams, particularly uh, temporary guest workers and student visas and, and, and others, such that the numbers now are like extraordinary. We're bringing yeah, in- I, I would say back of an envelope, roughly one in 10, if you add in all the student visas and PR, one in 10 are assessed as the primary candidate for immigration under the current point system. Precisely. And, you know, there has long been a, you know, a, a, essentially a compact between the business community, which likes low cost labor and government, which is sort of has a self-image of Canada as this beacon of immigration and so on. And I think it's that is hitting up against a wall primarily for most Canadians in the form of of, of housing policy. Um, but I think it gets at these more fundamental issues about living standards and the prosperity of Canadians. And so I, I don't know, I, I don't want to sound naive, but you get the sense something has changed this year and that the public will start to demand a more sensible kind of evidence-based immigration policy than we've seen in the past several years, which has essentially amounted to on one hand, uh, um, kind of platitudes about who we are, and on the other hand, a, a kind of strategy on the part of large businesses to, uh, you know, substitute cheap labor for the kind of productivity-enhancing investments that we we need to be making to to drive our economy forward. Yeah, suppressing uh, a lot of wage gains, which um, again, just it's bizarre that the NDP doesn't have more of a point of view on this because this is would you think key to a lot of its union uh, membership its union kind of allies um so we've talked about two big issues for the upcoming year per capita gdp immigration connected with that you also think interestingly that the online streaming act um that's going to go through um a system hopefully not as torturous as the online news act but who knows it could well indeed happen. You think that this could be a sleeper issue uh, for the coming year? Yeah, we talk a lot about C-18, the Online News Act uh, at the Hub and including on the roundtable. But early in the year, um, the, the government passed C-11, the Online Streaming Act, which is now making its way through the regulatory process. As we wrap up 2023, the CRTC, which is mandated uh, with responsibility for essentially uh, operationalizing or effectuating the, the law, holding hearings with, you know, traditional incumbents in the cultural industries, as well as um, upstarts, including those who use YouTube and 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 other platforms. And I, I think as these regulations take effect in 2024, and people start to see how it affects their ability to access the content that they want in a kind of democratic marketplace, I think we're going to start to see pushback. This is the most significant attempt by a government in Canada. And 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 I would argue increasingly in the advanced world to, quote unquote, regulate the Internet that we've seen in my lifetime. And I, I, I think it's going to have major effects on on the uh, burgeoning industry of of those YouTubers and others who use these platforms, but also on the consumption habits and practices of individual Canadians. I I think it's a huge sleeper issue as we enter 2024, as it goes from the kind of conceptual stage to the practical implementation. 
And I, I think a net effect, Rudyard, will be to continue to push young voters away from the Trudeau government that who will view the implementation of this as anachronistic and and just sort of out of touch with the way in which young people access content, engage news and information and and so on. So I, I think this is it. This has potential to be a, a, a big, big issue this upcoming year. Yeah. So my final one to put on the proverbial radar for an issue that I think will stoke more debate uh, will be the, you know, fate and future of journalism in Canada. Interesting factoid that you and I saw the last week. I was unaware of it. The Quebec government has introduced uh, labor tax credits for journalism also as generous as the federal tax credit. So effectively, effectively, once you figure in the Google money that will be released through the Online News Act, it's conceivable that online news providers in the province of Quebec will have close to 100% of the payroll costs of newsroom journalists subsidized by some combination of government and big tech. And I don't know, Sean, I think, I think the public is, has got a whiff of just how conflicted this has all become and the extent to which an independent press in Canada is now uh, not simply under threat, it is being disassembled uh, in wholesale across broad swaths of this country. Outside of Quebec, 50%, once the Online News Act uh, funds are released from Google, 50% of all newsroom journalist costs at online organizations will be funded by big tech and big government. We're seeing a collapse in trust in the media. We're seeing big incumbents like the Toronto Star and Post Media hanging on by their tooth nails, um, fingernails. I don't know, Sean, I think something could happen here. And I think the media could have a kind of an extinction event. And I think there will be very little, if any, public sympathy or interest in saving the media precisely because what the media has gone about doing so vociferously lobbying for government yes. bailouts, so enthusiastically <laughs> becoming rent seekers uh, in our economy that they've lost any kind of public constituency for who they are and what they do. Yeah, I just want to give you credit, uh, Roger. I know that's bold of me since you're the one who signs my checks, but um, but you... Uh, I think Sherry signs your checks. <laughs> Sherry Naylor, our amazing administrator. <laughs> <laughs> but you, when the agreement with Google came out, the first thing that you did was uh, seek to understand the totality of the different measures that are now either coming directly for government or indirectly from government. Uh, and this is important because you have to understand them as stack as stacked. Um, and in Quebec, of course, as you say, the stacking of these different measures is now approaching 100% of the cost for an individual journalists. The reason this is important is that for whatever one thinks of the CBC, um, it receives a single appropriation. It's clean and transparent. You can see how much is coming in the form of public dollars. And then, of course, it augments its public appropriation with other sources of revenue, including advertising. And one can debate whether that's a good idea or not. But at least it's it's transparent. We kind of know what we're paying and we know what we're getting. And then you can debate it. Um, we are now through these the stacking of these disparate policy measures 
essentially creating a series of mini CBCs across the entire industry. The, the only and, difference. And Sean, we're doing it anonymously because we're exactly. not telling Canadians who's in fact receiving this funding. It's outrageous. You as a news consumer are not allowed to make a differentiation on your own benefit, on your own choice to say, hey, I like these people because like the hub, they've committed themselves not to receiving government handouts. Whereas the Globe and Mail, the Toronto Star, Post Media, I can go on and on and on, are all on the government you know what. But you can't tell, you're not allowed to, you can't handle it to channel my Jack Nicholson <laughs> from a few good men, you know? It's outrageous, it's so patronizing. Exactly, and, and, and what it does, I think, is obscures the extent to which the government has in a short period of time, essentially, essentially come to permeate the entire industry and it's doing it in a way i think we you know one of the arguments we made against c18 and it was that if you if the government thought we should be supporting the sector then do it you know make the case to canadians and do it in a clear and transparent way and i you know i can't help but think that one of the reasons we've seen the stacking of disparate measures is precisely to obscure from canadians um the extent to which the government is now a, largely responsible for financing news production and dissemination in our country. And I think you're right to flag this as a major issue in 2024. It could be an even bigger one in 2025, depending on when the next election is. Um, but we are kind of hurtling towards, I think, uh, you know, use the word crisis when it came to GDP per capita, I'd say a kind of crisis when it comes to the state of transparency and trust in Canada's news media. Yeah, I'll just say to our listeners, I wish I could tell you which of your news sources were already receiving government bailouts and will accept more in the future. I can't because the government won't tell me and it won't tell you. I can tell you, though, that the hub is not going to take this money. We think our independence is too important. Uh, we think that this would really, um, frankly, make you think twice about who we are and what we do. How could we criticize rent seeking in the rest of the economy as we like to at the hub because we think it's not in our economic interest. It's not driving higher per capita GDP. It's precisely part of the problem. How does Post Media, how does the Globe and Mail address these types of policy concerns and issues with any authenticity if they themselves are taking government bailouts secretly and not telling their own readers about them? I try to be optimistic here, Sean, but boy, <laughs> this issue uh, I think could blow up in 2024 as we see some of these big legacy media providers blow up and uh, suddenly find out that the Canadian public does not care a whit as to what happens to them full stop. Well, let's take a break back on the other side with some predictions. What could happen uh, in terms of the economy, politics, world events in 2024? We're going to tell you everything you need to know about the year ahead. We got it all covered here at The Hub, back right after this short break. Hey, Hub Podcast listener, you're just one click away from getting access to all of The Hub's best content. Visit www.thehub.ca for our original journalism, commentary, wine reviews, poetry. We've got it all. The thinking person's one-stop destination for news and information is www.thehub.ca. While you're there, sign up for our complimentary Hub membership. You'll get delivered to your inbox each and every Saturday 
compilation of our best writing from the previous week. Again, free for you right now at www.thehub.ca. Welcome back to the Hub Roundtable. I'm Rudyard Griffiths, the Executive Director of the Hub. I'm joined by Sean Spear, our editor at large. Okay, Sean, prediction time. You were in a maternity ward this time last year, unable <laughs> to edify us with your perspicacity regarding uh, future events and trends. So now we're going to put you um, on the proverbial hook. Let's try to break this up into three categories, economic predictions, political predictions, and then geopolitical predictions. Uh, what would be your big economic prediction for 2024? I, I think we will find ourselves in a recession. Um, I know that there's a lot of people who think that that has passed us by, that we managed to get through 2023 unscathed. I think a large part of that, of course, was the inflation of immigration numbers over the past 12 months that did a lot of heavy lifting in terms of keeping us out of the out of the R zone. As we pull back a bit on immigration in 2024, um, I, I think there's a strong possibility that we we do record two consecutive quarters of, of, of negative growth. And I don't think it looms all that large over our politics, because I think it's already sort of baked in for a lot of a lot of Canadians. But I, I think that um, I, I think that a recession is more likely than not in the upcoming year. How about, how about you? Yeah, well, just two observations there. One is you've reminded us many times on this podcast, you know, the difference between one and 2% growth isn't 1%. It's effectively a doubling of the rate of growth. So whether or not we have a recession or not, I think the bigger problem is that we seem trapped post COVID into a low growth reality in Canada and the growth that we are having, you're right, is immigration. Immigration basically on a population basis brings in, uh, you know, one-to-one -one economic growth. So if you bring in, if you add 1% of the population each year, 300,000 newcomers, as we used to do in the past, you get 1% economic growth. You've increased the size of your economy and your population by the corresponding amount. You back out immigration over the last decade, Sean, even before we had these supersized numbers, and you see persistent sclerotic growth in Canada. I think that's, to show up to our earlier conversation, that's why we're seeing this crisis in productivity on a per capita basis and per capita GDP, because we're just, we're not growing. We don't have the drivers of growth in the economy, recession or not that problem is not getting fixed. My prediction would be, I think let's hope, I really do hope we have this scenario that's currently priced into markets as we close out the year, which is this kind of immaculate disinflation, especially in the United States, a perfect glide path down to 2% inflation and then um, continuing strong employment and GDP growth. That could happen of a series of scenarios. Who knows, maybe it's the more likely one. But I think if history is our guide, you know, inflation is like a bad horror movie. Uh, the zombie's hand comes out of the grave and it grabs you by the ankle at the moment you least expect it. And I think there's a risk here in 2024, as we've seen over the last couple of weeks, as bond markets have sold off substantially, yields crashing, especially here in North America. What does that do? It loosens financial conditions. It creates more opportunities for um, the economy to overheat. 
Um, add into that geopolitical risk, which we'll talk about in a sec, you know, a few Kutis with $2,000 drones are shutting down the Red Sea and displacing, you know, upwards of a quarter of the world's shipping around the Horn of Africa, adding major logistic costs. Don't rule out the extent to which geopolitics and events with a capital E could also cause uh, inflationary angst in the year ahead. So my bet is, Yes, inflation comes down. These uh, central banks are holding at a high rate. That will have an impact, but it may not be this, again, perfect glide path, this immaculate disinflation. There could be some more bumps in the road, and I would be prepared. Uh, one other economic uh, prediction um, that if, if it bears out, I think validates something that the Hub was talking about some time ago, which is I think 2024 represents a bit of a transition, Rudyard, back to uh, the prevailing norm of in working in office. You know, there's been a lot of question coming out of the pandemic about whether, uh, you know, the dur about the durability of hybrid work or remote work. Um, you know, I, I, in the past several months, we've seen a kind of growing trend, it seems to me, to restoring a norm about being in the office. Um, it's certainly um, my wife's experience uh, at her law firm. Incidentally, it's something that the hub is a direction the hub is moving in. We'll open up our uh, first office uh, this upcoming Friday. So next week, maybe we'll record the first episode of Hub Roundtable from our our new digs. And, and I think that that trend is is going to prevail across the economy. Of course, there'll be differences, and you know, I, all of the rest. I'm I'm generalizing a bit, but but I do think that. By the end of 2024, um, the notion of remote work or hybrid work will be a, a kind of minority experience in, in the economy. Incidentally, one most um, most predominantly reflected in the public sector, uh, which will create kind of further and, 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 and greater tensions between those working in the private sector and those looking in the, in the public sector, something similarly we've, we've talked a bit at, at the Hub over the past several months. Yeah, I would caveat that prediction with your earlier recession prediction. I think the extent to which people go back to work by the end of the year depends on the severity of the recession. I think uh, counterintuitively, maybe the worse the recession is, the more likely that people get back to work to try to save their jobs. I think Canada, the major cities, we are we are outliers. Um, we correspond much more to the bi-coastal United States in terms of lack of return to office. I hear countless stories of executives that are trying to get staff in, and it is a struggle. There were all kinds of plans uh, earlier this year, September, October, to return to the office three or more days a week. And I think outside of a few very specific industries, that effort has largely fizzled uh, in the face of ongoing opposition to return to work. And I think that's a big part of the economic malaise that Canada is in. This is something that we cannot afford. And I think any manager that is worth their salt knows that when teams are not together, you are not going to get optimal productivity through a disassociated uh, remote workforce. I just, I think there's a certain period where after the pandemic, it worked because those teams had worked together previously. But there's many people that we've added to our businesses over the course of the last three years that have had no experience working with their colleagues in person 
face to face. And I think we are, I think this is very short-term thinking. Uh, it's dangerous. And I think it could have big economic implications if we don't get back to work in a serious and substantive way. But hey, look, people, I get it. A lot of people don't like working. And uh, often I feel that way too. I'd rather be uh, walking my dog, doing my laundry, shopping for groceries. It's a lovely life, but often that life is reserved for entrepreneurs and others who take really big risks and often fail. Um, that type of lifestyle traditionally has not come with the security of a nine to five job and nine to five paycheck. But when have Canadians ever not wanted to have their cake and eat it too. I think that's one of those examples. Let's turn to political predictions. I, for the last two years, have boldly predicted each and every holiday season that the prime minister would take a walk in the snow between the adjournment of parliament and the reconvening of parliament in the new year. And each and every year, the last two years, I have been spectacularly wrong in this prediction. So this year, I'm going to adhere to my rule about predictions, my new rule, which is that predictions should correspond not to what you hope for, but what you think is actually likely to occur. I'm guilty, maybe as many of us are, of making predictions that align with how we think the world should unfold as opposed to the way it actually does. So in this case, I think the Prime Minister will surprise people in 2024 for his tenacity to remain in the job and to have the ability to lead the party and the country into another election. Am I wrong, Sean? No, you know what I was thinking about uh, this morning is our current political moment kind of feels like the end of 2013. Um, uh, bear, bear with me, because uh, the analogy may not be self-evident, but I think it works. 2013 was a difficult year for the Harper government. It involved um, the Mike Duffy scandal, the resignation of Nigel Wright as the prime minister's chief of staff. Uh, in hindsight, it was the kind of beginning of the end for the Harper government. But 2014, there was a bit of a bounce back. Um, the, the deficit was falling, but the government had a bit of play money. So it, it did income splitting and, and more money for childcare and so on. And it, it temporarily kind of obscured the inherent weakness of the government, which of course came to manifest itself in the 2015 election campaign. And so I kind of wonder, as the Trudeau government ends 2023, it's in a difficult position. It's kind of, I think, reached the bottom in a way. Um, it can't go much lower than 27, you know, 27% or whatever it is. And so I think we'll see a kind of bit of a bounce back in 2024. It, it won't solve for the kind of inherent structural weaknesses of this government, including a lot of the economic issues that we talked about earlier. Um, but for, for those reasons, I think the prime minister will have, may misinterpret actually the kind of state of his government and and see 2024 as a, as a year in which the government is sort of making, clawing its way back. Um, and for that reason, I think you're right. I, I think he'll stick around uh, and, and take his chances come 2025. Yeah. So my final political, it's not so much a prediction, but it corresponds to what you just said. I think that at the back of the prime minister's mind is a Goldilocks scenario whereby Donald Trump wins next November. And then he is able to trigger an election against the backdrop of the angry orange monster in the White House, scaring Canadians. Uh, and he will claim 
game. Um, look, I'm the line tamer. I saved NAFTA. Uh, he does have a, a record that he can fall back on there. And more importantly, he can step into a role that he's very comfortable with, which is, you know, a supposed capital L leading capital P progressive um, voice internationally as a kind of soft opposition to Trump and what he represents. I think that would be a, a compelling election backdrop for this prime minister. And I think I'm not going to predict that Trump's going to win, but I would say right now it's hard to think of it as anything other than a coin toss. Yeah. Yeah, I agree with all that. And I and, and it has the added benefit, of course, of either explicitly or implicitly making the case that you can't you don't want someone like Pierre Polyev in the prime minister's office working with uh, Donald Trump because they have too many similarities that Polyev, Polyev led government would have, you know, Trump like characteristics. And so, yeah, I think I think that is certainly the case that um, you know, it's funny when you think about it, to go back to my old analogy, the worst thing that happened to the Trudeau government in the short term was Trump's election in late 20, in late 2015. It sort of blew up its plans. But in 2024, 2025, a, a Trump election is sort of the, the best case scenario uh, for, for, for the government. Okay, let's switch to our final set of predictions on geopolitics. Incredibly busy year the last 12 months with the war in ukraine entering a new and uncertain phase uh, a horrific assault on israel on october the 7th the ongoing war in gaza um, growing and continuing tensions with china and the united states um, if you were to make a, a prediction a geopolitical prediction for 2024 sean what would it be and would canada have any role or part in it I don't make this prediction um, feeling good about it, but I think we'll start to see in 2024 the path towards a some sort of resolution of the Russia and Ukraine conflict uh, and a resolution um, that you that is not necessarily in the kind of interests or at least in the perceived interests of Ukraine that um, the Ukrainians have fought so admirably um uh over the past couple of years um you know genuinely one of the most um yeah one of the most kind of admirable expressions of national determination and um frankly kind of courage and honor that we've seen in a long time um those images couldn't you know you couldn't help but be moved by what what we've seen but i think uh you know it, the, the solution was never going to be Ukraine defeats Russia. As I think David Frum said to me in one of our interviews this year, you can't bomb Russia, right? Like you can't attack the Russian homeland. And and that in and of itself should have been a signal to policymakers and others that there was no, there was no outcome here that involved Ukraine kind of comprehensively defeating the Russians. And I think in recent weeks and months, that's become only, only more and more self-evident. And I think you're going to start to see Western leaders kind of begin to lean on Zelensky um, for the need of some kind of resolution. And um, I think there is going to be a huge gap between um, what the Ukrainian people understand, what the, what the, many in the West understand, because we've not been kind of conditioned um, to anticipate uh, a kind of negotiated settlement uh, to, to this conflict. Yeah, and let's, uh, let's be sure to put it in the show notes, a link to... Um the uh, talk that 
the Hoover Institution's uh, Stephen Kotkin gave for the Hub at a dinner we convened in the spring on the Ukraine war. And I go back to that talk, and I think if you listen to it today, it is a remarkably prescient summary of where we're at now, nine months ago. And I think it's just one example of the incredible, and I'm proud of this, incredible insights and access that we give you at the Hub to truly world-class thinkers that Sean talks to every week on his podcast and that occasionally I get the opportunity to host in person like Steve Kotkin, um, who has made much this point that Ukraine would have been much better off possibly negotiating before the failed counteroffensive for favorable terms with Russia. It's now going to be in a much more difficult negotiating position as its relative position, its strength vis-a-vis Russia and its ongoing onslaught, its criminal war against Ukraine uh, continues. My geopolitical prediction isn't so much a precise um, event or person. It's more a trend that I've seen in 2023, which increasingly kind of fascinates and worries me. And if I think of 2023 and something that was unpredicted or un expected was the emergence of drones as this new game changer in uh, modern military doctrine and warfare. Uh, We've seen it in Ukraine. We've seen it uh, in the Middle East. Uh, We're now seeing drones used by the Houthis in Yemen to attack shipping off uh, off the, uh, the coast of Yemen in the Red Sea. Uh, these are cheap, um, you know, in some cases, a couple thousand dollars will build you a drone that can carry a bomb. Uh, that drone can threaten, in some cases, destroy military equipment uh, that costs um, millions upon millions of dollars. Or in the case of these uh, American and British warships in the Red Sea, requires shooting a million dollar missile at a $2,000 drone to destroy it. So I... I worry, Sean, about what I think I see as a kind of a growing asymmetry in the world between these, uh, let's let's call them agents of chaos, uh, Iran, the Houthis, Putin. I would put, um, you know, a variety of players that we can think of in this camp. They seem to me, Sean, to increasingly have access to technologies that allow them, like drones, to have a disproportionate impact and effect on the more traditional, conventional kind of military systems and doctrines that the West has developed to police and defend the international world order. And that's why my prediction for 2024 is a big one. It's a broad one, but I think the coming year will be a year of and for geopolitics. I think there's way more risk embedded right now in the global international environment than we fully comprehend or want to accept. Um, I worry, uh, Sean, that there could be all kinds of new mayhem and madness and chaos that could be stoked in the coming 12 months by these bad actors using, again, a growing suite of technologies that seem to give them disproportionate effect and impact. Well, let, let me put let me put a question to you, because you think about these things more deeply than I do. What can the West broadly define do to push back against that trend? Doesn't it reinforce, Roger, the importance of Israel 
like bringing down Hamas, not flinching, not having the West flinch. Um, because if we do, doesn't that send a signal to these types of non-state actors and others who, as you say, can use these asymmetrical tools of war and then not and not face the kind of full consequences of their actions? Isn't it in that context especially important that Israel is permitted to to go forward and, and do what it can to to uh, restore deterrence uh, in the region and in so doing setting a signal to others around the world um, to be careful using these types of uh, uh, low cost but highly effective tools of war. Look, in the case of Israel, I think absolutely they have um, a series of legitimate and ambitious war aims that they have to pursue to something that looks like victory. It may not be the complete and absolute victory that they defined as their objective of the campaign in Gaza at the outset, but they either need to kill Sinwar, uh, displace the leadership of Hamas uh, to Qatar, or Turkey, or wherever these uh, assholes end up or want to go. Um, and they need to bring in some other different form of governance into Gaza. And anything short of that will be to undermine Israel's credible deterrence. But to your specific point, Sean, I don't know. I mean, I you can think of many, hist many moments in the history of warfare where new technologies have emerged, uh, gunpowder, uh, the repeating rifle, um, the machine guns on the killing fields of the Somme. There are moments where new military technology emerges and it has wide scale and destabilizing effects across multiple geographies. And I think we, again, I, there's the world as I want it to unfold. That's not the world I want. And then there's the world as it is. And I worry that, uh, I mean, look at this thing with the Houthis. It's, it's fascinating. Do you know that the Biden administration still has not put the Houthis in Yemen on the the sanction uh, terrorist watch list even to this day as they are firing drones at shipping lanes in the red sea causing unknown economic losses and chaos and again risking a potential inflationary uh spike if if this crisis becomes worse and why is that it's because of iran because the biden administration is pursuing i think this really um dangerous policy with regards to Iran, whereby they think there's some deal to be made with Iran on its uh, on its uh, atomic program. Yet in the last uh, number of days, we're now seeing reports that Iran has increased significantly the enrichment levels of its stockpiles of uh, uranium that could be turned into uh, a nuclear bomb. Um, I don't know, Sean, at, at a certain point, I worry that I think the one thing to push back against all of this is American power. And at some point, America has to use that power. And the Biden administration seems deeply uh, hesitant, maybe to their credit, uncomfortable about the risks of wider war. I think that ultimately goes back to their reelection campaign and their concerns about another inflationary spike that, say, a large scale war in the Middle East would surely bring about. But there comes a point where you either have to stand up to these agents of chaos and use the full weight and power of what is the largest and most impressive military force in the history of humankind, or you don't. And right now, Sean, I don't think there's the intestinal fortitude on the part of this U.S. administration 
to deploy America's awesome capabilities uh, on the sheer size and scale that they may be required to teach a really evil and pernicious regime like Iran the object lesson that it so desperately needs. Yeah, is there, I'd go even further, is there any political figure in Washington today that would make the kind of full-throated affirmative case for American global leadership? You know, it seems to me at some point in the past two decades, the American public has kind of grown tired of its role as a global leader. And, and you've had the political class sort of trying to bring expression to that kind of weariness. And I get it. You know, America has a lot of domestic problems. It would be, you know, be easy perhaps to kind of look inward and re rationalize resources and all the rest. Um, but America has been, um, uh, you know, a, a source of, of of good in the world for the past, you know, several decades. And in the absence of America playing that role, someone else will. Um, and so, yeah, you hope, you know, there's not reason to think that in, in the coming election, we're going to have that voice. Um, but someone needs to be making that case to the American public, because, as you say, as we enter 2024, the world looks more fraught than I, I think basically any time I'm born in 1982, um, you know, really any time in my virtually any time in my lifetime, certainly since the end of the Cold War. Yeah. And again, just these new asymmetrical technologies like drones, there's others like CRISPR, which is its own genetic editing tool, potential nightmare in its own right. All these things, again, very decentralized, very asymmetric. Um, they give small players disproportionate power, reach, and impact. And I think the United States and those countries like Canada, I guess, that are more or less aligned with a liberal international view of the world, this is not a moment to be on our back. Um, we're going up against new enemies, uh, new technologies, and historically, that would say this is a moment of destabilization, heightened risk, and uncertainty. So my, uh, I don't know, moniker for 2024 is stay frosty, Sean. It's going to be interesting. <laughs> well, well, we'll have to look back at the end of the year and, and see what we got right and what we got wrong. You know, part of me regrets that I couldn't find an excuse to get out of today's conversation precisely for that reason. I was batting 100% in 2023. Um, but good talking to you. And, and you know, the, notwithstanding some of the challenges that uh, Canada and, and, and the globe is facing in the upcoming year, it represents a target-rich environment for the hub. These are all <laughs> precisely the kind of issues um, that we're going to be writing about, that we're going to be having uh, guests on our our podcast to talk about, to try to help our audience and the, the hub community more generally uh, to kind of reason through these challenges. It's a it's a challenging time, but it's also a kind of exciting time, isn't it? Uh, for new ideas, new perspectives, and yeah, uh, you know, I guess we'll we'll be back in the our new office in 2024. Uh, so good talking to you in 2023, Roger. It's been a lot of fun and I uh, look forward to doing this next year and, and I'll do my best not to miss any, any, any episodes like I did late last year. Sean, I've really enjoyed this last year with you too. So many great guests on uh, Hub Dialogues doing exactly what you said, you know, dissecting these big issues and ideas for the benefit of our listening audience. 
just to remind everyone, the Hub team is taking a well-deserved break over the holidays, so we're not publishing right now regularly Monday to Saturday, but tomorrow you will be able to uh, get on our website and via our email newsletter um, a summary of Canadians who we thought made a difference in 2023. Um, tune in for that tomorrow. And then on the 6th, uh, we will bring you the predictions of our best commentators, writers, uh, hub staff on 2024. And then we'll be back to our regular Monday to Saturday publication schedule starting January the 8th uh, with our terrific hub forum discussions taking place every day. So thank you so much for listening. We'll talk to you again next week. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to this edition of the Hub Roundtable. If you've enjoyed what you've just heard, come on over to www.thehub.ca and check us out. You'll find all kinds of great commentary, analysis, and insights by our writers, including Sean Spear. While you're there, consider clicking on the Join button. This will take you to our complimentary membership offer. Put in your email and we will send you each Saturday a compilation of our best writing and commentary from the week that was. We really appreciate your support, and we also greatly appreciate the support of the Linda Frum and Howard Sokolowski Foundation and the Maxine and Ira Gornowski Gluskin Foundation for making these podcasts possible. The Hub Roundtable is produced and edited by Amal Otter Guzman. Thank you for listening.